So I once heard a pastor say that he noticed as he was reading through the Gospels that there were times where Jesus was beautifully tender with people, but other times when he was unbelievably tough with people. And this so gripped this pastor that as he was reading the Gospels, he would write the word tough next to those passages where Jesus was tough and write the word tender where Jesus would be tender in those passages. Very powerful to notice this, but this raises an important question because when we think about ourselves, because of our sin, we all tend, because of our different personalities, either to be too tough most of the time or too tender most of the time. But Jesus was perfect. Everything he did was perfectly out of love. And so whenever someone needed comfort, say, Jesus was always perfectly, lovingly tender. But whenever someone needed to be challenged or confronted, Jesus was always perfectly and lovingly tough. And that's what we're going to see in today's passage. Jesus being perfectly, lovingly tough. Luke chapter 9. Let's start with verses 46 through 48, where Jesus answers the question, what makes someone great? When it comes to someone who's ministering to people, what makes someone ministering to people great? Start with verse 46. An argument arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. Now, it seems that they were talking about whose ministry was the greatest. Whose ministry? So maybe Matthew said, I healed a blind man. That's, that's great. And maybe Peter chimed in with, yes, but I spoke of the kingdom to a Pharisee, and that Pharisee is now trusting Jesus. Or maybe Andrew said, okay, guys, but, but I cast out demons from three people in one day. So you can hear this conversation. I'm the greatest. No, 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 no. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. It wasn't pretty. And Jesus loved these men. And they need to be confronted. So Jesus perfectly, lovingly is tough with them. Look at what he says in verses 47, 48. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, the disciples, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Again, the disciples have been talking about whose ministry was the greatest. And Jesus wants to help them understand what it is that makes someone great in ministry. So he gives them a picture of a lowly, seemingly insignificant ministry. He takes a child, puts this child right standing right by his side, and he wants them to think about what it would mean to minister to this child, to, to get down on this child's level, to talk with this child, to share the good news of Jesus with this child, to, to pray for this child, ministering to one little child. That's what Jesus wants them to be thinking about. 
And then notice what Jesus says. Whoever receives this child in my name, that is, whoever ministers in this lowly, seemingly insignificant way, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. So, if you do this ministry, this lowly ministry of receiving a single lowly child in Jesus' name, you will receive Jesus. And if you receive Jesus, you will receive the one who sent him, God the Father. Now, how will you receive Jesus while you're ministering to a child? In what way will you receive Jesus? Is, is Jesus saying that just like you minister to this child, you'll be ministering to Jesus, serving Jesus in some way? I don't think so. Because of the same language that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 to 42. Look at what he says here. Notice the similarity of the language. Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he says to his disciples, Whoever receives you, disciples, that is, welcomes you, puts you up for lodging, provides you with food, ministers to you in some way. Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Same language. But he goes on. The one who receives a prophet, that is, encourages a prophet, provides for a prophet, helps a prophet in some way, because he's a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. That is, he will receive the same reward that a prophet does of He'll receive Jesus as the reward and the Father as the reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Same, receive the reward of Jesus and the reward of the Father. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now notice three times here in these verses, Jesus uses the word reward. So when Jesus talks about receiving him and receiving the Father, he's not talking about us serving him and serving the Father. He's talking about us receiving the reward of more joy in Jesus' nearness and more reward of greater pleasure in God's presence. That's what he's talking about here. Now, take that then and apply it back to Luke chapter 9, verse 48. Read verse 48 again. Luke 9:48 Jesus says Whoever receives this child in my name that is whoever loves this child prays for this child shares the good news of Jesus with this child receives me that is receives the reward of even more of my heart satisfying presence and whoever receives me receives him who sent me that is the reward of even more pleasure in the presence of God for he who is least among you, that is the one who, the one among you disciples who ministers in the lowliest way, the one who ministers in the lowliest way, is the one who is great because he is receiving Jesus and the Father as his reward. And there is no greater reward. Isn't that powerful? So what makes someone great in ministry is not the size of crowds being ministered to, or the size of the budget, or the building, or anything like that. What makes someone great in ministry is that as they minister, whether it's to one little child or to a massive crowd, what makes them great is that they are receiving more of Jesus 
and more of the Father. So, Grace Church, don't seek a big ministry and don't shun a small ministry. Love however you can, in whatever way you can, and you will be great because you'll be receiving more of Jesus and more of the Father. Isn't that powerful? Perfectly loving, tough words that we all need to hear from time to time. Okay, then, in the next two verses, Jesus answers another question. What about those who are not part of our group? Okay, verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Okay, so, so picture what's happening here. This is amazing. The disciples see someone who's oppressed by a demon, an evil spirit, horribly oppressed. But there's someone there with him, laying hands on him, praying in Jesus' name, casting out the demon, and the demon is cast out, and this person who had been oppressed is completely restored. That's what's going on here. But because the person laying hands on and praying and casting out the demon is not part of their group, because that person was not just traveling with them, they tried to stop him. So picture the conversation, like the disciples are saying, excuse me, sir, sir, what are you doing? That's the disciples. And then the man responds, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm casting out a demon in, in Jesus' name. And the disciples say, you can't do that. You must stop that. Stop casting out the demons. And the man answers, why? I love Jesus. I'm casting out demons. I'm freeing people in Jesus' name. Why should I stop? And the disciples respond, it's because you're not part of our group. You have to stop. You're not part of us. Now, what does Jesus do? He is perfectly and lovingly tough with these men. Verse 50. But Jesus said to him, to John, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Let's think about that. How does Jesus know that this person casting out the demon is not against them? It's because he's casting out demons in Jesus' name. So he knows Jesus. He loves Jesus. He trusts Jesus. So even though he's not part of their group, their traveling group, he is for them. He's on the same team with them. They're on the same team together. So Jesus says, do not stop him. And I think the implication would be instead, encourage him. Pray for him. Thank him. Honor him. You're on the same team together. Now, what does that mean for us here at Grace Church? Think about other churches that are here in Abu Dhabi. We are Grace Church. There's other churches. Now, at Grace Church, we believe and preach what is main and plain, clearly taught, black and white, in the Bible. We teach and preach the Trinity, the deity of Christ. They were saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. We preach the perfect truthfulness of, of the scriptures. That's what we preach, that's what we believe. And praise God, there are other churches in Abu Dhabi who preach and believe the same things. What's clear, black and white in the Bible. So I think Jesus wants us from this passage to ask this question. How do we think about those other churches? They're not Grace Church. 
we're not part of those churches, but how should we think about those churches? See, I think Jesus would say we're on the same team with them because we're both teaching and preaching the clear black and white truths of the Bible. We are on the same team, right? We're for them. They're for us. We're, we're working together to advance the glory of Christ here. You might say, well, okay, but, but, but like, they, they sing 11th century Gregorian chants in their services. How are we on the same team? And I think Jesus would say, if those 11th century Gregorian chants are exalting me, if they are lifting up the gospel, if they are glorifying God, then praise God. Thank God for them. You're on the same team with them. Okay, learn some of those 11th century Gregorian chants. Or, or what if there's one of those churches, that, well, they don't believe in spiritual gifts the same way we do here at Grace Church. How about that? But again, spiritual gifts is a topic that godly people can agree to disagree on because it's not clearly taught in the Bible. Every church has to decide what they think the Bible is teaching, but it's not as clear as the deity of Christ, the Trinity, and salvation, and so forth. So ask yourself, what is in your heart toward other churches in Abu Dhabi who preach and teach the Bible and lift up and honor Jesus? What is in your heart towards them? Jesus would say, love them. Pray for them. Don't feel like we're competing with them or that we have to think of how we're better than them. We're all on the same team together. Pray for them. Celebrate their wins. Pray for them when they're struggling. We are brothers and sisters. We are. This is the body of Christ. They are part of the body of Christ. We should love and honor and bless them. But there's more. In the next section, Jesus answers another question. When is the time for fiery judgment. When is the time for fiery judgment? Start with verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, this is very powerful to think about. Jesus knows that the time is coming when, in Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be beaten, scourged with 39 lashes, nailed to a cross, hung up to suffer horrifying, excruciating pain, and worst of all, to be receiving the wrath of God for sin. He's going to be punished, punished for the sins of everyone who will trust him. And Jesus knows that's what awaits him in Jerusalem. And so what does Jesus do? He sets his face to go. Go to Jerusalem. Now, this is one of those phrases in the Bible that I would encourage you to memorize and make it part of your, your prayer. Let it fuel your worship and let it strengthen your faith. Jesus, you set your face to go to Jerusalem. You did not let anything keep you from suffering for me. You chose Jerusalem because you loved me and, and were going to save me. And so just let that strengthen your faith and deepen your worship. Then verse 52, he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people in that village did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, why did the Samaritans care that his face was set toward Jerusalem? It's because there was intense 
racial hatred between Samaritans and Jews and vice versa. So when these Samaritans heard that Jesus was heading towards Jerusalem, they knew he's Jewish, and so they did not welcome him into their village. And look at how James and John respond, verse 54. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? So James and John are furious. How dare they not let Jesus in? How, that's just horrible. They deserve God's judgment right now for this. But look at how Jesus answers them. Perfect, loving, tough. Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Now, we don't know what Jesus said, but that word rebuked shows that what they did was wrong. He's saying, you are wrong, men. Now, why? It's because earlier Jesus had told them what they should do when they came to a town that rejected them. They should shake the dust of that town off their feet in a symbolic public way so that the whole town would understand that what they're saying is, unless your hearts change, you're going to face God's fiery judgment. That's what they were supposed to do. Don't call for judgment, but let, let them be warned. But then also in Luke chapter 6, Jesus tells them what they should do with their enemies. Love them. What they should do with people who mistreat them. Pray for them. So see, clearly, James and John were wrong. This was not the time for God's fiery judgment. That time would come at the end of history. But God is waiting. He's waiting because he wants more to be saved. God is being patient with this village of the Samaritans. So here's the question. How should we respond to people around us who don't believe? Should we get angry at them? Should we give up on them? No. See, this is not the time for anger or wrath. This is the time for love. This is the time for appealing to them, weeping over them, praying for them, sharing the gospel with them, sharing the gospel with them again. This is the time if we suffer to suffer persecution, to, to endure suffering for Jesus' sake. So don't get mad. Instead, love, weep, Pray, appeal, share. That's what God calls us to do now. Okay, then, starting in verse 57, Jesus, this is very powerful, he answers the question, what must I do to follow Jesus? And he gives three answers, each very powerful. The first is, we must count the cost. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. Anywhere. I'm yours. And you can hear this man's enthusiasm, right? So this, this person has heard about Jesus. He has seen Jesus' glory. He's trusting Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus. So how does Jesus respond to him? Does he say, excellent, join in, come on? Does he say, welcome, here, meet Matthew, meet Andrew, meet Thomas? It's not what Jesus does. He responds with words that are perfectly loving and tough. Verse 58, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, I, me, the Son of Man, has nowhere to lay his head. 
Now, what's Jesus doing? He wants to make sure that this person understands the cost of following Jesus. We know that we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. That is, we trust him, Jesus, to forgive us, to change us, to fill us with his presence, to satisfy us with himself. But trusting Jesus in that way also includes turning from the other things we used to trust to satisfy us. So there's cost. We're turning from all those other things, and there's cost there. So even though we're saved by faith alone, there's cost that's part of that because we turn from the other things we were trusting. And here Jesus gets specific with this man in terms of a, of a cost. He says, you know, you may have been trusting that you have a secure home to live in, but to follow me in my travels, we're on the road. We have no set place to stay. We eat, we wash, we sleep when we can, where we can. That's the cost. So notice, Jesus goes out of his way to explain the cost to follow Jesus. He does not just describe the benefits and kind of forget about the costs. He is very straightforward with the costs. And that's true throughout the Gospels. For example, he says, you might be persecuted in following me. Your family might turn against you because you're following me. You could be arrested for following me. You could be killed for following me. He's very straightforward. And that wasn't just true for back then. That's true for the whole period of church history. Now, Jesus is also very clear about the benefits. You will be forgiven for all your sin. You will have the joy of knowing God. Amazing. You will have your heart overflowing with all satisfying rivers of living water, satisfying all your heart thirsts, and you will live forever. So he's very clear on the benefits as well. So let me ask you, here Jesus is making the cost very clear. Have you counted the cost in following Jesus? And when you share the good news of Jesus with other people, are you clearly laying out the cost? See, if we don't share the cost, we haven't shared the gospel. So important to understand that. We must share the cost because if someone doesn't understand the cost, they don't understand the gospel. And if someone doesn't understand the cost, then the first time they come up against the cost, they will not be prepared for it and strengthened for it. Tell them the cost so that when it comes, they'll be ready. So the first truth in this section is that we must count the cost of following Jesus. The second truth is that we need to feel the urgency of evangelism. Verse 59. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So Jesus calls this man to follow him. But first, this person wants to go and bury his father. Now, now some say that this man's father was not dead yet, so he was just kind of putting it off indefinitely. It might be 5, 10, 20 years before he would follow Jesus. But I don't see anything in the context here that points in that direction. Everything here points to the fact that this is a perfectly justifiable, reasonable request on this man's part. And yet Jesus responds with some perfectly loving, tough words. Verse 60, 
Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now this sounds harsh, doesn't it? Jesus is saying, do not go home to bury your father. I'm calling you immediately to go out and start preaching the good news. Now, why would Jesus do that? Doesn't Jesus call us to honor our fathers and mothers? Yes, he does. So why does he call this man to leave immediately and start proclaiming the gospel? Why does he do that? I think the answer is in the words, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus wants this man to understand that while his father has died physically, yes, everyone else in the whole world is dead spiritually. Everyone else is dead spiritually, far more serious than your father dying physically. Everyone else is dead spiritually, and apart from faith in Christ, they will continually be spiritually dead, the walking dead, all walking together towards eternal judgment. So Jesus wants to, to wake him up to the urgency of evangelism. He's not feeling it. Well, I want to follow you, but first I want to go and do this. Well, even if it's a good thing, he's letting that good thing distract him from the more urgent thing and from what Jesus has specifically called him to do. And don't misunderstand, there's nothing wrong with going to bury your father. If in the path of obedience to Jesus, that's what he calls you to do, beautiful. But Jesus wants to warn this man and warn us that there can be good things that distract us from the urgency of evangelism. Don't let that happen. See, this is crucial because Satan works overtime to make us forget that everyone else in Abu Dhabi is walking spiritually dead. They're the walking dead, walking, marching toward eternal judgment. And the only way they will be freed from that is with the good news of Jesus Christ. And we have the good news of Jesus. It's like they're all walking in chains, being led towards judgment together. And you have the key. There's only one key, the name of Jesus, and you have it. And oh, that should give us a sense of, of urgency. Do you feel the urgency of living in a place where thousands and thousands of people are the walking dead heading towards judgment. Do you feel the weight of that? Hudson Taylor was one of the first missionaries to inland China in the 1800s. And I found a quote this week from one of his sermons where he was seeking to stir people to feel the urgency of evangelism. Listen to what he says. Do you believe that each of these lost people has an immortal soul? That is, they will be alive forever after they're raised from the dead, either to judgment or to heaven. Every single person is going to be alive forever. Do you believe that each of these lost people has an immortal soul and that there is no other name but the name of Jesus by which they must be saved? If so, Think of their condition. Think about that. And examine yourself in the sight of God to see if you are doing all you can to make him known to them. They are in chains 
dead spiritually, walking dead towards judgment, you have the key. Do you feel the urgency of that? Oh, Grace Church, let that grip you with the urgency of evangelism. Third truth about following Jesus. Following Jesus means keeping our joy set on Jesus. This is verses 61 to 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. So this man had already decided to follow Jesus, but first he wants to say goodbye to his family. Now, Jesus does not say no to this man, but he does give him a perfectly loving and tough warning. Verse 62, Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying? Following Jesus is like putting your hand to the plow. You see that Jesus is your all-satisfying treasure. Because you see that, because you trust Jesus to be the one satisfying you now and forever, you turn from the other things that you used to trust to satisfy you. And so you put your hand to the plow, you devote yourself to pursuing Jesus, the path of obedience. I want more of Jesus. He is my all-satisfying treasure. Put your hand to the plow and you move ahead. Now, as we move ahead seeking our joy in Jesus, he does give us other joys. He will give us the joys of family, talking to your father and mother, say, for example. He will give you the joys of friends, conversation with friends. He'll give you the joys of seeing sunsets. He'll give you the joys of apple pie with vanilla ice cream. None of those joys will satisfy you. Crucial to keep that in mind. But he gives them to us because they show us even more of how amazing he is so that we will seek our joy in him all the more because he is what will always fully satisfy us. So, we keep our hand at the plow, seeking our joy in Jesus, enjoying other blessings like family on the way. Nothing wrong with family, okay? But now what's going on in our hearts if we stop, and instead of looking toward Jesus and pursuing him as our all-satisfying joy, if we stop and we turn around and we think, oh, family. What happens if we look back from the plow? What happens if we let family or any other joy make us turn back from Jesus. That would be deadly serious. That would mean we're no longer trusting Jesus as our treasure. We don't have faith in Jesus as our treasure anymore, which means that unless something changes, we are not fit for the kingdom of God. It couldn't be more serious than that. And so Jesus wants this man, and he wants us, to, to search our hearts. Is Jesus Christ your greatest joy. Are you starting to turn back to look away from Jesus, turning to something else which you are trusting as your greatest joy? Oh, when that happens, red alert. Stop everything. Get your heart back on Christ. You're being lied to by Satan. You're starting to trust his lies. See who Jesus is. God help me. I'm, I believe. Help my unbelief. Fight the fight of faith. He will restore you, but be alert when that starts to happen. Now, here's another quote from Hudson Taylor on this topic. Nothing can ever substitute 
for the presence of Christ. Nothing. A real Christian will be miserable without him. That is so, so true. He must be all in all, the highest object of our affections, or we cannot be happy ourselves or make others happy around us. Nothing can ever substitute for the presence of Jesus Christ. So Grace Church, let me close with this. Set your hand to the plow. Jesus is your all-satisfying treasure. Set your hand to the plow. Keep seeking your joy in Jesus. And don't let anything make you turn back. Nothing. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus. Tough words here in this passage. Words which can set us free from sin by your power. And we know these words are perfectly loving because you are perfectly loving. So Lord, I pray that you would take these words now and have them sink deep into our hearts to show us how we need to trust you more. Show us how we need to change. Show us where we need to repent. And Lord, that you would come and help us and sanctify us and strengthen us. And Lord, for those listening who are not yet putting their hand to the plow and following Jesus, let them see and feel right now that there is nothing that will satisfy them, nothing that will bring them forgiveness, nothing that will bring them reconciliation with you, nothing that will help them avoid judgment, nothing that will bring them eternal life apart from you. And today, let them put their hands to the plow and move ahead in trusting you and following you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.